0: Welcome to the academy podcast a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth i'm your host shalom Agderab. the academy creates transformative space for people to connect with god self others and creation for the sake of the world to learn more about the academy visit academy.upperroom.org on this month's episode we hear from marjorie thompson author of soul feast a spirituality classic and bestseller for many church workers like myself this was our seminal book on spiritual formation Marjorie is ordained in the presbyterian church usa and brings to her ministry over 30 years of experience in retreat work teaching and writing in christian spiritual formation marjorie considers writing a central dimension of her vocation For 12 years, Marjorie served as Director of Pathways in Congregational Spirituality with Upper Room. In that position, she was Chief Architect of Companions in Christ, an innovative small group resource series for adult spiritual formation. Currently, she works freelance, offering retreats, lectures, and spiritual guidance. Marjorie deeply supports the Academy for Spiritual Formation and has served as faculty for both two-year and five-day models. Here, Marjorie speaks to a group of church leaders in 2017. I note the date because at the time you might be listening to this, you may think she's speaking of Russia in 2022. She is not. On another note, we join our hearts with all people who long for not only an absence of war, but for lasting peace with justice. Now, imagine this. A baby growing within a womb, causing the parent's body to change and shift as ribs are kicked and bladders are pinched. Is the person carrying this fetus making room in their body for new life to grow? Or imagine a pitcher that you pour out of and a towel symbols of a rabbi flattening hierarchies so we might know we are loved. These images, both of the baby growing in a womb and a pitcher, a basin, and a towel, these images remind us of what God does for us to include us into God's unfolding kingdom of love. Listen on, dear ones, and may your understanding of God and your understanding of self, be challenged and welcomed home.
1: We ended yesterday with Richard Rohr's observation that the Bible is a book in travail. It's an interesting way to put it. The Bible itself reveals to us a pattern of growth in human understanding of who God is and what God requires of us. There are things that are, were taught to people thousands of years ago that we no longer believe to be valid for our human life together. It's a process of discerning where the Spirit is alive and moving, teaching us those new things Jesus promised. Remember Jesus' word to his disciples. I have many things yet to tell you, but you are not yet ready to hear them. I think he was speaking for the long term. So Rohr says the Bible is a book in travail. Although there are plenty of scriptural references to support the notion of almighty domination and control, it poses a great many spiritual and theological difficulties for us. And thankfully, the overall biblical witness shows us an alternative path of God's way with human beings. God's way that is often expressed through what we might call non-dominance. And that's where we'll be going more today. Uh, But I want to say maybe the primary way we see it is that God chooses to relinquish the glories within the mystery of God's own being, the divine Godhead, through the Incarnation to take on the weakness and the suffering of the human condition in the human flesh of Jesus. And that begins to point us in quite a different direction from the ways we typically imagine the omnipotent glories of God the Father Almighty. What if we allowed Jesus' own life and teachings to alter, maybe even radically alter, the notions of divine power and domination, I would say, um, those conventional understandings of which our religious culture is so fond. And I think uh, the place I would turn to first of all, is the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. So we're going to come to that momentarily. Toward the end of the week, I'll also be making reference to the Beatitudes as a kind of a map of Jesus' own way of living among us and his call to us in terms of what our own discipleship looks like. As we recalibrate how we think of God's power, it inevitably affects how we think of our own lives. Now, I do not mean to suggest in any way a diminishment of our affirmation of divine power. What I want to ask is, What kind of power does God choose to exert? How does God use power and for what purpose? Divine dominion is very closely associated with glory. The biblical language is there in abundance. This is from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Power, thunderous power and glory closely linked. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew 24, toward the end of that Gospel, We have the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Power and glory. And the God of power and glory is very often tied in with judgment as we see in that text from Matthew For too long, I think the church has been enamored of the vision of divine glory aligned with judgment. And it has given grounds for centuries of Christian triumphalism. Where the church has been allied with the powers of the state. Because where else do we most commonly see glory and power associated? Associated? The powers of the state, of the nation. We can actually see quite a remarkable illustration of this right now in Russia, where the Eastern Orthodox Church has been restored to its former glory. That is, from the era of the Soviet uh, atheistic uh, regime. And now the church is back basically in the same position in relation to the state that it had under the czars. No distinction. No separation of church and state as we have in this nation to preserve the freedom of different religious traditions, different understandings of faith, part of how this country was founded. What we have is a church that will not critique the abuses of the state, and a state that is very happy for the church to be in its camp, because nothing is more powerful than divine sanction of state power. Nothing. If you have God on your side, who can oppose you? Another reason for us to be careful, to be thoughtful, about aligning glory and power without thinking through what we mean, what those terms mean in relation to God, Yesterday, uh, I, I took that phrase, God of glory, Lord of love, out of the hymn. And as I said, you know, they're, they're really, those two phrases can be beautifully aligned. But if we pull them apart, uh, the way I've been trying to indicate, then the God of glory and the Lord of love can be taken for uh, as a kind of shorthand of the poles of raw sovereign power on the one hand and servant love on the other. All right. So now I want to uh, move more into the self-emptying of God in the Incarnation, which is language that comes to us out of the Philippians 2 text called the Christ Hymn. Uh, Beautiful. uh, A a beautiful piece of work. So, uh, But before before we get there, you have in your hands uh, a chart. And I want to sort of go through that chart with you a little bit. It's it's four images for the relationship of divine and human power. Um, I was going to try to kind of get this up on the board, but you you have it essentially in front of you. Um, The horizontal axis is the human axis in this chart. Does everybody have a copy of it? It looks looks like this. Okay. And so the the horizontal axis on top is the human. The vertical axis is the divine axis. And basically, we're looking at the relationship between dominance and humility on on both axes and seeing what this might look like. I'm trying to line out four options in how we might see the relationship between God's power and our own power. God's humility and our own humility. And again, it may be somewhat oversimplified um, for the sake of trying to clarify categories. You have some brief descriptions of what these look like. So the first quadrant, quadrant number one, is the one where divine dominance and human dominance are together. And I'm suggesting that what that looks like is that God's dominating control sanctions human domination and control. That's what it looks like when you put together those two pieces. And I think it is, uh, it's represented scripturally by what I would call a distortion or a misinterpretation of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where dominion becomes domination. Uh, in in our interpretation, that we have dominion over the over the earth, uh, it's reinforced in Genesis three sixteen, where God's punishment for human sin places the woman under the rule of man. So it's okay for men to dominate women. It is. Uh, illustrated in texts like the capital punishments for infractions against the holiness and purity codes of Leviticus. Particularly, you find it in Leviticus 20, the chapters 20 and 24, where we get uh, uh, the the commands, the injunctions to stone to death, idolaters and adulterers, and murderers, and blasphemers, and so forth. Um, It is illustrated by the whole idea of destruction unto the Lord, where Israel's armies slaughter whole towns wholesale, men, women, children, even the animals, uh, supposedly at God's command. That pattern of destruction we can still see in parts of the world today, that understanding of obliterating entire communities. I think most Christians today would not want to say that that was probably ever God's intention, but a misunderstanding of the nature of God and what was required. But this is where we have to take a different view of the scriptures themselves and see a pattern of growth in human understanding of who God is and who we are meant to be in relation to God and one another. Let's go on to... uh, the next second view, number two, is divine humility and human dominance. I think this basically represents a pretty reasonable picture of what our world actually looks like most of the time, the, the way we live in disregard uh, for divine humility and its claim the claim of God's humility on how we are to live our lives. I I think of God's plaintive appeal in Psalm 81, Oh, that my people would listen to me. Or Jesus' anguished yearning as he looks out at Jerusalem, the city that slays its prophets. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. You were not willing. God's cry to us from a posture of humble love that we, in our own arrogance, are unwilling to hear. I think that represents the second quadrant. The third quadrant, which is divine dominance and human humility, uh, I've indicated essentially this, this would be God's control demanding human submission. I think maybe a, a passage that, that uh, epitomizes, or maybe even exaggerates, that view in, it, from our perspective now, would be um, Leviticus 26. Uh, Leviticus is, has a lot of penal codes in it; <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, very punitive book in many ways. Uh, but these these were, this was the outgrowth of the law. In ancient Judaism. And I think Jesus took issue with some of these laws as well (laughs) Uh, by some of the things he said and did. In any case, uh, in Leviticus 26 verses 14 to 33, we have this devastating picture of the increasing increasingly severe penalties that the Lord will visit on Israel if they do not obey all the commandments and observe all the statutes and ordinances of God, including all the aforementioned punishments of the law against against impurity. These are ritual cultic laws of the Levitical priesthood, if you understand uh, uh, some of the history behind that. So... It's, uh, it's pretty grim. It's the you better watch out part of Santa Claus. You know? Uh. Then you also have the illustration of this quadrant from the Book of Job. At the end of the Book of Job, there's an amazing exchange that expresses another angle. on on this quadrant. So remember, Job is innocent. He's being punished unjustly. He has done nothing. He's a righteous person. And he's experiencing all kinds of awful things. Um, When Job complains about being unfairly afflicted, God throws out this challenge to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Shall a fault finder <coughs> contend with the Almighty? Oh, Job says, Okay, see, I'm a small account. What shall I answer you? But God continues to press Job. Will you even put me in the wrong, God says. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? I mean, good Lord, this is God Almighty speaking, right? And Job is reduced to utter humiliation, although he has done no wrong. I have uttered what I did not understand. Therefore, I despise myself, he says and I repent in dust and ashes. What is the message we might take from this? We have to repent in dust and ashes whether we're guilty or not. So this is the you better not cry part of the Santa Claus song. You better not shout, you better not cry. You better watch out. Because no matter what you do, God is bigger than you. So it's an interesting story. Now, that's not the only way to interpret Job. But what I'm saying is, when we hear it that way, and that would be a very natural way for us as human beings to hear that story. It supports quadrant three in the diagram. Many, many, many people live their lives in that sense of total submission to an almighty God that we cannot understand. Um, And we do it because God says, and that's it. We don't ask questions. We don't complain. Um it's like the parent when the kid asks why, and the parent says, Because I say so, <laughs> because I'm the parent and you're the kid. it's that dynamic. Quadrant four is where divine humility and human humility connect and The way I've described that is that God's humble love and service models for us and evokes from us our own love and service. And I think this is where Jesus takes us. So two texts that fully express this view uh, are found In the New Testament, John's Gospel, 13, 1-17, where Jesus, precisely as teacher and Lord, washes the disciples' feet, takes the role of the servant, the slave even, wraps that towel around, strips his outer robe, becomes the servant, and you can see how unsettling that is for the disciples by peter's reaction you are not going to wash my feet you're my lord hey let's let's keep the hierarchy in place here you know let's keep the social order the way it's meant to be jesus says if i don't wash your feet you have no part in me how can you be part of my servant love in this world if you're not willing for me to overturn that social hierarchy. Jesus has never been real big on social hierarchy in his life. He's the one who hangs out with the sinners, who even calls them into his close circle of disciples. Tax collector? Are you kidding me? The hated, despised? Jewish tax collectors who were working for the Roman oppressors, collecting taxes for Rome, the Roman emperor, and skimming some off the top for themselves to make a living. Jesus called a tax collector named Matthew to be one of his disciples. Jesus is always doing things like that. Strange guy. Philippians 2, 1-8, um, where we read that the community of faith is urged by Paul to have this mind among you that was in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself of divine privilege and glory to share the full human experience all the way to its dregs in order for a larger life and beauty, a different kind of glory, to be revealed. And this, of course, is what I believe offers a much more adequate picture of who God is in relation to us, a much more holistic understanding of what salvation is. And I know many of you are familiar with this, but let me just say it again. Salvation, that word, the English word salvation, is rooted in the Latin salve, which means healing. Salvation is healing. Jesus was all about healing. Precisely those who were suffering, those who were um, sinners, those who were embroiled in confusion and um, darkness, and who were living in ways that were not life-giving. His whole life was given to bringing people back, to healing. That fourth quadrant is one that I think genuinely represents what we could call good news. Good news. I want to conclude our time today with a a very intriguing final image for the self-limitation of God that I think kind of opens up a new window a, a new possibility for how we can explore God's humility. And you have this. This is actually from Elizabeth Johnson's book, She Who Is. It is called The Kabbalistic Doctrine of Self-Limita- Divine Self-Limitation. This is a very little known doctrine of how God is related to the created world. Kabbalah is uh, an expression of Jewish mysticism. Every great religious tradition in this world seems to have a mystical branch. And interestingly enough, the mystical branches of all the great world religions share a great deal of common ground. They are all unitive. They all um, perceive an underlying unity in the whole cosmos, a unity between God and creation, a unity between and among all people. And out of these mystical traditions come some very interesting and perhaps uh, challenging perspectives. So here here is how, uh, in the beginning, a dilemma exists. Because since the infinite God is the fullness of being, boundless, There is no room for anything finite to exist, right? Within the infinity of God, God is all. God is all in all. Where is there room for anything finite? How can there be anything outside of God, if God is all in all, all all-encompassing? For the world to be possible at all, some space must be hollowed out for finite being to exist in its own integrity, without being swallowed up by God's overwhelming infinity. In the act of creating, therefore, divinity withdraws. God makes room for creation by constricting divine presence and power. There is a contraction, or concentration, or enfolding of the divine being in order to clear a space for the world to dwell. And into the resulting void, shaped by divine self-limitation, The creative word is spoken and the world is brought forth. Thus, creation outside of God nevertheless remains in God, in the primordial space made possible by the self-contraction of the infinite. God's generous self-emptying is the condition for the possibility of finite existence in its own autonomy, while the difference between creator and creature is embraced by the one who is all in all. Now how's that for an image? (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Several things could be said about that. Jürgen Moltmann, uh, one of our 20th century theologians, one of the greats, says God withdraws himself from himself in order to make creation possible. This self-restricting love is the beginning of that self emptying of God which Philippians 2 sees as the divine mystery of the Messiah. So. If that's true, then God's self-emptying starts with creation, not just with the incarnation. It encompasses the whole. Very interesting. And of course, Johnson points out that using male language for God in this metaphor of creation is a blatant anomaly. Mm -hmm. To have room inside yourself for another to dwell is a quintessentially female experience. For one who is not you to be living and moving and having being within you is a maternal image. So this might be a good time and way to open up conversation around our gendered naming of God. The God who self limits out of love to make space within for a beautiful and beloved creation, to make room for the beloved's own autonomy, freedom of choice, um, befits a maternal metaphor for the naming of divine being, divine wisdom, and delight.
0: The season of Lent is underway, a season of self-reflection, yes, but only if you are looking with the eyes of love, not contempt or judgment. I'm curious what good news found you as you listened. When you hear the statement, how can there be anything outside of God? What kinds of feelings does it bring up for you? Are you able to hear the claim that God limits God's self to make room for us? What does it mean for your life to know that God emptied God's self to make room for you? Joyce Rupp has a poem called The Emptied One. And just one line from that, she says, were you teaching us even through your dying? that emptying out of self is part of the giving? Today, I wonder if there are ways for us to act out of love for the sake of others, thus following the model and gift that God gave to us. Is there a way to empty out, make room for someone else in your life that ultimately leads to life-giving love? Share this podcast with others. May it be a nudge, a guide, an honoring of intuitions you've long held and a means for justice in your lives and in the lives of all. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Marjorie, join us at the next online or in-person Academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.